get food at the end. Uh, so if you haven't eaten, like, please do. We don't do any food waste here. Um, so I am I'm incredibly eager to get started. Uh, this is the panel I've most been looking forward to for the whole of conference because as much as us policy wonks like to pretend we care about the detail, um, we don't. We care about the game and the politics. Uh, and I think that's why we've got a full house this evening. Um, so the way this is going to run, we've got some fantastic interventions from abroad. We thought it was a bit mean to ask our Australian counterparts to be up at 3 a.m. in the morning, so they've sent in a video message, but we also have a piece from Germany as well. And then I'll come to each of our wonderful participants in the room. So starting on my right, we have Tim Dixon, uh, founder of More in Common and former advisor to both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard in Australia. We have Polly Billington, who is chief executive of UK 100. Megan Corton-Scott, a political campaigner from Greenpeace, and Tom Sass, associate director for Net Zero from the Institute for Government. So, without further ado, let me play our nine-minute video. Uh, please do continue to enjoy your food and pay attention to Bent Burke from Germany. The climate change itself played a very major role uh, since we have a very um, famous Green Party right now with uh, two heads on the on the uh, on top of it, which. Um, yeah, could get together all the the voters um, under under the climate change aspect. But what we added here as SPD as Social Democrats was to bring it together with uh, the um, yeah with the added value we have in Germany. Since we have a big industry, we have lots of of workers in in the industry. I think uh, to put together uh, labor work and energy itself as a as a compact message that was uh, i think one of the key features that enabled us to to win these elections um, together with the green parties we have very long very many overlappings um, which are intrinsic um, because uh, both of the parties aim for the uh, more left-wing um, left-wing politics but overall you can say that uh, the difference is that the green party is more idealistic it's more about the targets that we have to save the planet and we are the ones which are more pragmatic saying hey come on planet that's true but we have to do it in a certain way because we have to keep the labor in the country in europe and we have to make sure um, that all the climate change movement doesn't only um yeah con include that uh, yeah the the goods we need for it come from abroad uh, we have very widespread voters in germany especially in, in the right-wing movement there's even uh, climate deniers that uh, say okay there's uh, there's no climate change for overall not uh, made by by humans and uh, there's the ide idealistic people saying okay the we only made it so somewhere in between there's the truth uh, but uh, nonetheless, we have to make sure that we uh, not only find the middle, but to form a um, a majority. And that's the thing. That's what we have. We do the so-called ample, uh, ample with the traffic light. So it means red, yellow and green. So we have the three parties and the other one is the liberals. And we could conclude that we say, OK, we want to make it. Um, with a um, with an economic approach that we make sure that the added value keeps uh, stays in the country. We want to have the investments here. That's the liberal stuff, and we want to aim for a green um, environment and for a green um, um, for when we aim for a green economics. That's the word. <laughs> so um, I think that's uh, that made uh, made the clue somehow because um, we could form the majority and um, the conservatives. Um, part of them even denying uh, the climate change had no chance at all. Especially in northern Germany, where I come from, uh, we have lots of jobs in the wind industry, for example, and we have a history 
of a really, really rundown solar industry in Germany. We were once, I think some 10, 12 years ago, we were world market leader in solar industry and ran down to, to zero jobs. Uh, right now it's rising again. And so we saw what can happen if you have a fault politics and if you if you kill it by politics and was killed by politics. And that was uh, one of the messages we had in Northern Germany to say, hey, come on, we have lots of jobs, 120,000 in northern Germany in the wind industry and uh, to make sure that they stay here and that we uh, deliver the climate change movement so to, that we deliver to the climate change movement on the one hand and on the other hand to the added value that we can make a living out of it by green jobs. I think that was one of the core messages especially in northern Germany and southern Germany it's a bit different and in eastern Germany too um, but overall the, the topic of labor and of good jobs and good environment was very important for us. Yes. We not only have the issue of uh, non-isolated houses, we have the issue that we don't have enough houses. That's one of the core things. So we went out with a very, very straight message saying we want to build 400,000 homes. 100 of them are socially supported. So to make sure that the people can afford a living. And with detailing that, we said, of course, we want to have it in a very, very uh, environmental friendly way. So they have to be insulated, they have to be, um, there has to be a, a certain amount of uh, renewable energy in the heating and in the um, in the energy supply of those houses. And that was the, the binding message we had here. Not only to have the labor, we want to produce it here and we want to make it in an environmental friendly way. And you can not only have labor from it, the work, but also your housing. Knowing that uh, UK is very strong in uh, renewables already, especially in offshore wind industry, for example, I would suggest um, make sure that the people understand, <coughs> make sure that the people understand that um, the jobs and the green environment are directly linked together and are a major chance for a big leap into the future, binding all Europe together, not only European Union, but also all Europe. And so we can make green products with um, uh, green energy and green jobs and a green living. And that's a positive thing, not expensive, but cheap when you make it right. So if you look at the structure of what we, we had set up in Australia leading into the May election this year, there was the rise and the rise of the so-called teal independence. And teal comes from blue, conservative, it's a blue, a conservative colour here, and green, um, because there are a large number of what were previously heartland conservative seats were increasingly frustrated on the lack of ambition on climate. And in fact, a, a negative position on climate from the federal conservatives here. Um, and that was organised, became very well organised. They had a very uh, strong fundraising machine called Climate 200. And they ripped a hole. They absolutely ripped a hole in the heart of conservative uh, seats. It, I, I, I cannot overestimate the, the second most powerful um, Liberal MP, the, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, lost his seat, uh, a seat that I don't think it's ever been held by anyone but a conservative in its entire you know, history of 100 years or so. Um, and so we've now got 10 independents and a senator who have been elected very strongly on a climate sentiment. Um, so that was one extraordinarily strong strand. The other strand, which uh, I uh, led with others, um, was just very focused on ground work in marginal electorates. These weren't so-called teal electorates. They weren't um, liberal uh, the liberal seats with that sort of green edge. They were more classic Labor conservative seats, or in some cases, Greens, capital G Greens, Greens Party, Labor, Liberal seats. They, they could go 
any one of those ways, but held by held by the Conservatives. And I should add, for those who don't know, our Conservative Party here is confusingly called the Liberal Party. Um, uh, and so we, we put focused resources in those seats, simple tactics repeated at scale, such as the climate action sign, yard sign behind me, got out hundreds of thousands of those to make it manifest and, and really drove that was a parallel strand to drive in. So in, we had the so-called teal seats independence, and we had these other seats making climate big. Interestingly, Australian Labor really ran relatively quietly on climate to the last, really the last 10 days. Um, and that was part of a broader, you know, I think it's fair to say my take is fairly small, smaller, uh, broader, small target strategy. I and others were frustrated by that. I think they could have been bolder and faster, but they came through in the end. Uh, and there's no doubt that their commitment and much stronger policy base is, is really being driven home now in government. Um, got an excellent minister in Chris Bowen, uh, climate change minister is really driving things. Um, and we'll keep pushing for more ambition. So I think there are a range of strands there from the ashes of defeat in 2019, much more organising on the ground. I don't know whether those teal independence going into heartland conservative seats is something that's relevant in the UK. But certainly here, what is there's a broader long-term trend which is happening. Um, I understand it's, it's perhaps similar in the UK as support for major parties, Labor Conservatives, is in long-term decline. And those votes here, we have preferential voting, those primary votes are going elsewhere. Some of them are then going back in different ways, of course, to the Conservatives and Labor. But we've got a long-term trend. So that, with our communications, we were very careful uh, to lead with messages about the future, about jobs, a renewable economy, which Australia has extraordinary natural advantages with, with our minerals, our huge area, sun, our sunlight and so forth. So leading with those messages and then talking about the risks, the disasters and so, and so on. And this was very much us getting out of the, uh, what I'll call a, the alarmed activist bubble, who actually are more fired up and innovated by the ex extraordinary uh, risks we now face and disasters we now face. Actually, we, we were, our, our research clearly shown, shown and we're very happy to share that. We have a, an assessment called Climate Compass, which looked at the whole spectrum of views in Australia. So we focused on middle Australia and we focused on positive jobs, um, renewable powered future messages primarily. Um, backed up, we didn't, we did, we, we talked about climate, but the messages were fairly simple, so like above my shoulder. Make that. <laughs> um, so two different lessons I think now from Germany uh, they talk about building a coalition uh, where you're united by climate action despite the fact that there may be different messages in there in Australia the use of climate to fracture an existing conservative coalition what matters we're all in Liverpool we're in the UK is how that plays out here um, so we're going to turn to our panel for some short reflections on that I'm going to start with Tim and Tim, I was wondering um, if you could comment on how this global picture is sort of playing out in the UK, whether the UK is different or the same, um, and particularly whether you've seen any change in your time looking at these sorts of issues. Sure. Thanks. 
Um, I think there's been a huge change. So I, I have kind of um, some of the scars from the uh, being in government, Prime Minister's speechwriter, uh, through the, the kind of the green wars, climate wars in Australia, where we um, had an emissions training scheme and lost lost it, and you know, a lot of internal politics that happened with the Greens, um, who had the balance of power in the Senate, blocked it, um, and set up what has really been 15 years of sort of policy um, paralysis in Australia. But then in contrast to that, in the last decade, um, in the UK and the US, across in, in European countries working on climate, the big thing I would say that's changed is, and it's been kind of a gradual change, but where we land now is climate is now an all of society issue. There really isn't, particularly in the UK, which because we do a lot of comparative polling, more in common, and our sort of lens is not super technical, but it's more helping climate organisations and um, a, a sort of a wide range of organisations to speak to that majority and to, to hold a consensus of seven or eight out of ten. And you know, we've largely got that now um, in the UK. Now, it doesn't mean not for every aspect of climate policy, but it's just a big shift that. And the UK is generally top of all of the, uh, across Europe, more committed on climate, more of a consensus, um, more commitment on renewables and things like that. But I want to say a couple more positive things and then three warnings. So it's an all society issue, stronger in the UK than other countries, and also high salience, you know, despite cost of living and even through the COVID era, um, climate remained sort of second or third top issue for the public across most European countries. Um, in the UK now it's third after, so it's cost of living, NHS, and, and then uh, climate. So high salience, important, quite unifying. Old polarities that exist in the past are definitely falling away um, on this. For example, the feeling that you have to trade off short term and long term. Public just doesn't think in those terms, and that's really significant in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Um, because there's been a shift, you know, we asked the question about whether uh, renewables are cheaper um, or more expensive than other, other sources of power. And now, so this is just at the end of July, so that's six, eight weeks ago, was 37% saying cheaper um, and 21% saying more expensive and then others unsure. So it's not like a huge majority, but it's shifting. And of course, you know, the more people understand the numbers that Starmer talked about today, the more that's going to continue shifting. Um, and thirdly, I think new constituencies are emerging, particularly around security. So Putin, Russia, people are, are getting that. Um, and that is meaning that there's a, there's a different group in the community that is engaging around that and obviously the cost saving. But three caveats to that. The one is that we track, yeah, traditionally we think of politics and think of people's beliefs in a left-right sense. Now, one of the things that more in common constantly says in our research is it's just one in three people in a country like the UK think their politics is important to them, to their identity. Two-thirds of people not. And the, the group in particular who have very little political identity, low trust, low engagement, you know, feel quite disenfranchised, they're the ones you really need to look at. We tracked them, you know, identified them uh, a couple of years ago in our, our research, showed that they are a very distinctive group in, or, or groups in their response. They were the people who were most resistant to vaccines. They're also the people who now are most resistant on the climate message, uh, most likely to distrust anything that governments say. It's not that they have a view on climate, it's just they distrust, they're just like low trust. So they, they are significant because they, you need to speak to them. It's not that they have an opposing position on climate, it's just they have really low levels of trust, feel disenfranchised. In, in general, um, and they really dislike being preached at, and they dislike the activism, the voice of activists. So that's the second caveat I want to say is, 
Activism can be very disconnected from the people we need to reach to hold that, that societal consensus. Um, and that's, you know, one question we asked is, do you feel that the climate movement welcome, would welcome a person like you? And the UK, the number is 47% of people say no. And what's particularly interesting is the UK has the highest levels of commitment on many measures around climate, climate action, but also the highest levels of people feeling disliking the climate movement. So the more the voice comes from activists, the more you will actually reduce that public support. And that's a hard message, obviously, for activist organisations. But the voices that people will trust are people like them. So this is my third point on the caveat, is people don't like the save the planet kind of messaging in terms of like holding this, this large consensus. It's much more practical, mm -hmm. so it's the less abstract stuff. And this is where it's kind of interesting. It's more like the money-saving expert sort of approach. We had somebody in a focus group recently where they just happened to be like a um, solar installer, and people found out, they were like, oh, you, and they, we had a half-hour excursion into <laughs> how do you do installation and installations and all of that. People have a ton of questions, and they hate the kind of general rhetoric that is thrown at them around climate but they really want to hear about how to do things practically. On EVs, you know, I had somebody yesterday who's a classic kind of more doubtful person. He says, look, I know I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I still have a petrol car, but I, I don't know, will my mechanic still have a job if I get a petrol car, and will he be able to fix my car when it, if it breaks down? So they're super practical questions. Are there enough charging points? It's those sorts of questions that they're asking. And this is where I think political leadership needs to... We, we need explainers in political and other roles, especially people will trust uh, somebody with a trade skill, somebody who does the practical things that we need to make adjustments for in, in our lives. So that, and it's also a general thing that people dislike politicians, they dislike NGO spokespeople, so they'll, they'll, they'll trust somebody more like them. And, and the last point to say just relating to that is, um, we do not assume, as, as this crisis grinds on, we have a very difficult winter, don't assume that everybody's going to remember and make the connection around Putin and Ukraine, cost of living crisis. You need to keep explaining. Right now, Brits understand that connection more than people in any other European country. One of the reasons why we saw the far right just elected in Italy is they have the lowest and the highest belief in Putin, the lowest, lowest kind of connection is made. You need to keep on telling that story. And we just need, in political and public life, we need more explainers who are helping to make that connection. People aren't resistant to it. It's just like, you know, we are like a lot of voices and a lot of information all the time around us. But I think that that's true in a lot of the practical transitions that people will be, will be making, some of which will be easier, some of which will be harder. But those explainers, people who are relatable like them, people who are local in their community, for example, like they're going to be really important as we continue um, down this road. Brilliant. Thanks, Tim. Definitely a couple of points for us to pick up there on, and notably on the activists, I'm sure there's going to be some questions in the crowd. Um, and this point about messaging I really want to get into as well, because so you look at this research from IPPR recently on the number one things that motivate people to take climate action, and it's future generations, it's protecting their local environments and green space. So that seems quite different both to what we heard from S the SPD and what we heard from you, so maybe we'll get into that in a sec. Um, Megan, Greenpeace have done an awful lot of polling and work on the ground on this front us a little bit about how that tallies with what we've heard already. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Greenpeace last year 
Um, we did some polling in Blue Wall constituencies. So we looked at Steve Baker, we looked at Ian Duncan Smith, we looked at John Redwood. Um, Steve Baker, um, as I'm sure most of the crowd are aware, is kind of the most prominent climate skeptic, rather, in Parliament. And we essentially found that all of their constituents, not just swing voters or Labour voters or Conservative voters, but all of their constituents wanted to see firm action on climate from government. Um, and this is obviously polling that we uh, sent to them with no response. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is something that we see across the board. And this is not just within um, climate skeptic Tory MPs, but uh, this is in every single constituency. And so I think it is very easy to sit on this panel and in this room and at this conference and say that public support for green policy um, is at an all-time high. I think that uh, what we've heard and what Tim has said has outlined some of the really practical reasons why support for specific policies are at an all-time high. I think it has been true for a very long time in this country that people go, yes, I'm green, I want to see action on the environment. And by that, they mean I will take a bag for life to the supermarket or I will, you know, take my chilies water bottle with me, but they won't necessarily want to think about the way that they heat their homes, the way that they commute, uh, or indeed, you know, what they buy and what they consume. I think that it is um, sad to say that some of the crises in the last six months, the, the war in Ukraine and the obvious ensuing cost of living crisis has hammered home to people the need for um, a green and renewable and sort of government-owned source of energy. I was very heartened to see, by the way, after Keir's speech today, some Commonwealth polling that shows that 72% of the public support a uh, publicly-owned energy company um, that is focused on renewables, and also 72% of Conservative voters support the same thing, um, which is incredible polling that um, I didn't think that I would see. Um, so yes, our Blue Wall um, polling has been fantastic. Um, we've also done some really interesting work with oil and gas workers uh, in the North Sea. So we've gone up to Scotland um, and spoken to quite a few oil and gas workers who've essentially said uh, that 82, let's get that right, yes, 81.7, okay, 82% uh, would like a job outside of the oil and gas industry, but the biggest thing holding them back is job security. And so to come back on what Tim was saying about, you know, voters don't see short-term, long-term, and I do agree with that, but I think that, um, you know, when people are looking at their jobs, and as you were saying, you know, is my mechanic still going to be able to fix my car, and is he still going to have a job if I switch to an EV? Um, that's something that's really, really worrying to these fossil fuel uh, industry workers. Uh, I was in a roundtable previously, uh, at yesterday at a conference, where we were talking about the kind of the future of the green transition, and essentially what was being said is that, you know, people take apprenticeships, for example, and they go, okay, I'm going to be on low pay and a low quality of life for three years, but after that, I'm, my whole life, I'm going to have a decent job that pays me well and that I know is sustainable um, and that won't change or move. And if we can offer that to people with a green transition, then they will switch. But right now, it, they don't feel like that's there and that that promise is there. And I think that's really something that Labour has to think about in terms of when it is laying out their long-term plans and saying, this is the way that the future is going, this is how it's looking, and you will be ensured that you have a job for life. But also, actually, where are the people to fill those jobs? And and this is something that, you know, Labour Conference doesn't like to talk about, but we do need to talk about the skills gap and the employment gap in the green industry. I mean, even Liz Truss at this point is, you know, saying, actually, we need to relax the rules on migration and employment in order to be able to fill holes. We need to, as the Labour Party, talk about the same thing. Um, and so, actually, the, um, the employment gap and the skills gap is something that is essential to the green transition, and we're not really talking about. Um, and I would just say very quickly, because I think I've gone on a little long, but um, aside from polling, um, I would say on the activist point, 
to come back onto him. Obviously, as Greenpeace, I would say that uh, activism is incredibly effective and everyone <laughs> should do it. Um, but actually, when you look at things like the Just Stop Oil protests over summer, a lot of people are saying, no, we don't really like their tactics, and yes, it's a bit annoying, but actually we agree with them, and it's awareness raising, and it's effective, and it's awareness raising. Um, and on a slightly lesser activist level, um, not so uh, getting arrested, but actually a, a really strong component of Labour Party getting into government, the one area um, that we have the Tories be, apart from morally, uh, is our ground game. It's our volunteers. You know, we have an incredibly strong volunteer force. I'm sure that most people in this room um, will have at some, well, yeah, most people in this room will have at some point knocked on the door. Um, I'm sure that at least a handful will have done a, a you know, 5 a.m. leaflet drop at some point or another. Um, and it's the dedication and the volunteers that we need to utilize, that the Labour Party needs to utilize, to go out and to deliver a net zero message and to make that real and tangible in people's communities and in people's lives. And there's a huge role for our volunteers, but there's a huge role for local councils and metro mayors within that as well. So I think that activism has many faces um, and stories can be delivered via a multitude of ways. Thank you very much, Megan. <laughs> Polly, this conference has been about setting out Labour's stool and trying to create a series of new dividing lines with the new government or the latest iteration of the government. Um, but we've been talking a lot about consensus here, particularly on climate policy. Where, is, where do, should climate policy be competitive and where should it be more consensus-based? Are there different approaches that are going to benefit us? Yeah, there are. Um, just for people who, who aren't aware of what UK 100 does, we're a network of local leaders uh, from across England, Scotland and Wales. There are now more than 100 local leaders that, um, elected who have made a commitment to achieve net zero well ahead of 2050. Why? Because the most ambitious need to go faster, because there will always be laggards. And secondly, because by making that commitment to getting there earlier, knowing that the current regulatory framework does not enable them to do that, it gives them a platform to agitate for national regulatory uh, change. The key thing about this organisation is that we are establishing a political consensus across all parties, right? We have leaders from all of those main parties, and I would say particularly the message that I got from uh, uh, the contributor from Australia, is that this is the radical centre ground which you need to be contesting, right? We now have net zero enshrined by law, not by a Labour government, but by a Tory government, right? We had COP26, whatever you think about the outcomes, actually delivered by a Tory uh, government. We had net zero as a key message up to that, uh, that conference by um, uh, a Prime Minister that, I, that no one in this room would have voted for. Um, but it's actually, because of his kind of Brexity Heather position, actually ended up having some com cons comparatively interventionist approaches on things to do with industry, manufacturing, and the energy. So not as much as, as anybody here in this room would like, uh, particularly because the science is barreling towards us at a rate of knots, and we've got to get on with it. Which does go to my point, which is that I spend quite a lot of time, and not only a Labour Party conference, but quite a lot of time just basically saying, we haven't got time to work for the electoral cycle, right? Mm -hmm. CO2 emissions don't seem to uh, apply to uh, polling booths, so we've just got to get on with it. Um, and that goes to my, uh, my uh, second point, is that political consensus is important in order for us to be able to have a conversation about the how rather than the weather, and that goes to marginalising the likes of Steve Baker and so forth. That also means, and this is, this is difficult because I absolutely recognise, you know, having been one of those activists 
at some time in the past, perhaps. Um, I recognise the importance and value of agitating, dis uh, disrupting, and so forth, including the fact that it, it has to, sometimes you do have to be inconvenient in order to be able to change the, change the conversation. And recognise that somebody said to me once, Greenpeace is just like Kevin the teenager, right? You've just got to accept that he's a teenager and he's always going to be like that. Um, and and he, the thing is, Greenpeace isn't going to grow out of it. And actually, that's its role to do that. And I remember Lord Deben saying to me at one point, I want whoever it is to be more like Friends of the Earth. And I thought, OK, right, that's, that's their role. It's not my role. There are different roles to play um, in this. But establishing the political consensus and making seeing that climate change is the opportunity for a radical centre ground is something that all sensible politicians of all political stripes are understanding. And the reason why I know that is because we've got 100 members of all different political stripes and they are doing this. The difference is, and I think this is really important, particularly for anybody here who cares about national policy, is national policy needs to learn from local policy. Local policy, as in delivery, decision makers every day in this country are making pro-climate decisions um, and are on the basis of budgets, which, as we know, are extremely thin because of the kind of, of uh, local government finance settlements they've had over the last uh, 12 years, and yet they're still managing to deliver. And also, pu the public believe that local government is and should be one of the main drivers of delivery on climate. So anybody who says, oh, we shouldn't be talking about it, or oh, we shouldn't be doing it, or oh, there's something else to be done, that, look, don't select them. Right? Just don't select them. Just don't give them a platform. These people are not serious people as far as dealing with the challenges of this country are concerned. You can dress it up any which way you want, but fundamentally, if you don't tackle climate in your local, uh, your local authorities, you are not discharging your duties as a politician, regardless of your political party. And I would say that you should, to anyone who's got any kind of selection panel, it's just like, chuck them out. 34% um, <laughs> of the public believe that local government should be the priority deliverer of climate change action. They know the powers that they've got. Um, in fact, what's interesting is a lot of councillors don't know and understand the powers that they've got, which is why our research, Power Shift, which is basically now used as a Bible by our members, gives them the opportunity to identify all of the powers they've got and their limitations in order for them to be able to implement them more greatly. But if you give, the, if you give people an opportunity to make decisions or, or uh, make trade-offs about what kind of um, energy they want, renewable energy comes up top. This is regardless of whether they are young urban people or older rural people. We've got a, conservative, we've got a countryside climate network dominated by conservative-run uh, uh, local authorities. They are desperate to be able to work out how they're going to be able to deal with the agricultural industry, which is, tends to be their major industry, how they're going to deal with rural transport, what they do about refurbishing the homes of the, of the fuel poor in, uh, in our rural areas. So you can actually find people who will, ta will tag themselves as Thatcherites who are refurbishing the social homes of whole counties, right? So don't think you lot have got any kind of monopoly on this, okay? Very, very pleased to see the slogan. Very, very pleased to see the announcements today. Some big questions to be asked. Generating energy is fantastic. What are you doing about energy demand? You've got a 19 million pound target, 19 million home target for refurbishment. Is that my home or your home? Or your home? Am I part of the 19 million or is it going to go to somebody else? Really easy way to end up with, a divisive, with divisiveness. Why aren't you establishing a guarantee? 
a comfy homes guarantee. Everyone should be able to have a comfy home that is affordable. You have a standard that is then delivered by a service, dare I say it, by unionised members of, for example, the GMB, who therefore <laughs> might be able to be retrained and reskilled in order to be able to deliver something that actually people want. Maybe that would meet our skills gap. Maybe that would meet some of the political challenges that the Labour Party has got, and maybe that would deal with the cost of living crisis. I'll leave for, with one more point. It's on the just transition. I've had conversations with trade unionists who said, yeah, when you say just transition, what I hear is job losses. And I absolutely agree on that car mechanic point. It's in some ways the trade, the unionised, organised uh, workers are one thing in places like Aberdeen and, uh, and uh, gas-fired uh, gas turbine uh, power stations. It's the car mechanics in the arches that I went to talk to the other day. And is he still going to be there? when, like you say, whether, when I come to him with an electric car, is he frightened about what that means for him? And that is the kind of conversation we need to be having. And I'm not quite sure that anybody of anywhere in the political spectrum is really prepared to seize the, seize the uh, nettle on what that means for a significant number of people who may not be talking about a job for life, but will expect some kind of security um, uh, over time, which at the moment we, don't, uh, we haven't quite uh, offered. So I think, remember that it's local, remember that it's, that it's in the centre, remember you can still be radical, and remember anybody who is not prepared to talk about this or act on it should, has no role in, uh, in politics today. Awesome, thanks, Bonnie. If you could take your um, message about selection panels to the one person in the shadow cabinet that Politico keeps finding, managing to find, so the green is a terrible thing, that would be fantastic. Um, Tom, so Polly has rightly said that we don't really have time. We have to work with the current government, we have to work with future governments, we just have to get on and do stuff with this. I know Institute of Government have done a lot of work around the role of public opinion in making policy change. Why don't we just get on and do it without asking? So, I mean, I think politicians have been a bit behind the public on this. So I think to sort of underline some of the things Tim said, I mean, you have really broad-based public support in this country and sort of broad and rising in every demographic, which I think is quite unusual. And I think the, the key point that's different in the last decade, if you looked at what happened after 2008, you had sort of pretty high climate concern and then tailed off in that sort of post-financial crisis when people's household budgets got very difficult. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is through COVID, through the current energy crisis, actually climate concerns sticking right up there and right across um, the demographics. Um, I agree with the point um, that was made earlier that I don't think the Conservatives are likely to sort of vacate this territory for a particularly long time if they do, if they indeed do under the trust government. Uh, Onward had a really interesting bit of polling which showed, I think, that the Conservatives could lose sort of 1.3 million votes yeah. if they ditched the net zero target. So I think we have got pretty clear um, political consensus. Um, I think, you know, still in Westminster, there's a, there's a kind of um, a slight kind of lock on thinking that it's, a, it's an issue for kind of wealthy, younger, more urban voters and not right across the country. So I think that's, that's sort of starting to change. Um, just to pick up on um, one of the points you made on, on tailoring messages, I think that's really interesting because, you know, I think a lot of the focus in the speech that we saw today was around green jobs, green industry. Clearly, that's going to work in some parts of the country, and you can start reeling off names and, and places. Um, 
the IPPR research that you mentioned, I found that really interesting because what it said was actually messages that look at global leadership, that look at climate impacts, that talk about future generations, those sorts of messages are more persuasive to people who are kind of more in that middle ground. We didn't hear a huge amount of that today. And I think particularly that question around climate impacts, when you think about, you know, the sort of summer we've just experienced, the sort of wildfires people have just sort of seen in the UK for probably the first times in their lifetimes, I think there's a big gap there. I think um, the point Tim and Polly raised on messengers is very interesting. Um, I was chairing a panel earlier today and I, was talk I asked Darren, Darren Jones what he thought the role of politicians in communicating around this stuff and he said actually I think probably local leaders are going to be better at, at, at doing this. Um, they are trusted people locally. I don't think often people don't like to be kind of hectored to or kind of talked to through a sort of television screen from this sort of distant person and I think definitely the point around sort of who is the boiler engineers, the installers, you know, getting these kind of voices from manufacturing out. Um, the third point I just wanted to make was just on, I think, what's on the climate pledge card. Because um, I think, you know, we haven't really seen that many of those policies that really cut through. Uh, I think windfall tax, potentially one of them, you know. I think the uh, announcement around GB Energy today it seems like very smart politics. I think there's an awful lot in terms of the policy to work that out, how it's going to work, the role that that company might play alongside others and, and actually sort of not replicating what's already being done. But clearly that has a kind of, that has a branding element which, which will cut through. But if you look abroad, there's a lot of really interesting retail policies starting to come out. One that caught my eye in the recent um, New Zealand net zero strategy, they had a, an EV rebate targeted at low-income families. Um, and I think that's the sort of policy where you think, okay, that can speak to other people across the country. Um, and I think at the moment we're running this risk of it being a transition which doesn't benefit the whole of society, actually. Quite a lot, in quite a lot of areas, if you look at homes, EVs, etc., it's benefiting a particular group. Um, and I just wanted to finally pick up on what Tim was saying around the risks, because I think you know, we are at the kind of relatively easy stage, if we can put it that way, of this kind of net zero transition. You know, we've done the low-hanging fruit, we've done our energy system to some extent, um, but actually where we're going is, is much, much harder. The politics of this are made easier in some ways by the kind of fossil fuel crisis that we're living through at the moment. That's not going to be permanent. And the, the most difficult things are working out how we pay for this huge range of investments across the country, transforming the fabric of our country, going in, taking boilers out, into, you know, it's going to be expensive, going to have to work out how to pay for it. And I think that's the moment at which some of the politics of it becomes more fraught. So it's kind of insulating yourself mm -hmm. to those messages. Um, one of the lessons I've definitely taken away from conversations here around that with kind of councillors at the local level has been around low traffic neighbourhoods, which I think are one of the first examples of that quite confrontational and difficult bit of um, political coalition building. Um, and I think it has worked in some places, but it's worked where it's been done slowly, collaboratively. You've really talked to the people who are going to be affected by those, understood their concerns, brought them involved, you know, got them involved. Maybe you've done something like you've introduced a kind of, you know, something around a school first before you've gone for a full, you know, so, so it's thinking about staging and bringing people on board in the journey. And I think those are the types of political kind of skills that we're going to need later on. Thanks, Tom. I, I think, particularly on the pledge card, I definitely think you're right. It feels like the top two are insulation and energy, and then the question comes is what's West Streeting doing on public health prevention mm. or 
Bridget Phillipson on skills, like how does that cascade through the rest of the Shadow Cabinet? I'm going to ask one more question to our panellists and ask for very brief um, responses and to come back on anything that anyone else has said and then we'll go out to you. So I just want to open up one more front for discussion in that, Tim, you raised the, uh, the disengaged chunk of the voters and then Polly, you said that this is the new centre ground. Nigel Farage is sitting around at the moment with not a lot to do. Um, if we are talking about the centre ground, is there room for somebody on the extremes to go against all this stuff? And Polly, if I start with you. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, absolutely. There is always an opportunity for those people to uh, exploit things. And I think this goes to the, the, the important thing about acknowledging that people have different roles in terms of dial shifting. But um, if this becomes a cultural vibe thing, and it's all about your identity, right? You, you're going to lose. And I've been I've been wanging on about this since 1989. I know I was in nappies, um, but the but back then one of the big big environmental problems and big, big environmental the mistake that the environmental movement made was to make it about individuals and behaviour change, right? Because then it's like, oh, you've got a car, have you? Oh, you eat meat, do you? Oh, really? Then are you really? Are you really green enough? And this comes from people who you might actually want to persuade to change, thing, change things, and indeed people who think that they are greener than you are because you do these things. And let's be honest about it. I know this is popular in rooms like this and not necessarily popular when you're talking about persuading people who need simpler answers to things, but this is systems change, not behaviour change, right? The only, it, you know, I, people are not going to afford an EV unless you make some big, some big decisions, not only about subsidy for the very, uh, for the very poorest, but also for transformation for small and medium-sized businesses. Get yourself an EV rollout. That means transformation of the grid. That means changing the distribution network operator. That means getting off gem to do things. So I'm sorry. Basically, it goes back to some big stuff that needs to happen alongside your great big energy company, right? And your great, your great big British energy company is fabulous, but there is a whole lot of regulatory change that needs to happen in order for people to be able to go, yeah, you know what, I'll get a Nissan Leaf rather than a Nissan Micro, whatever it is. And that, that is the big thing. So I think the biggest risk, actually, is if you position it as virtue um, and you make it all about the cultural vibe. And we know that, I mean when I'm not doing this during the day, which is basically telling, telling everybody to mainstream the hell out of this stuff every single day, make it, make it about what you're going to have on your street, what kind of jobs you're going to have in your community, how comfortable you are about getting, letting your kids walk, to, walk or cycle to school because they feel safe and they're breathing um, healthy air. Um, in my evenings, I'm a councillor in Hackney where we lost two seats to the Greens, ironically, partly on low-traffic neighbourhoods, right? <laughs> where the Greens said they would do it differently and better, right? So don't give me any of this stuff about green voters being interested in green stuff, right? This is just another way of kicking a mainstream party that actually wants to get stuff done. So just be very, very clear about that. And that is not to say you should not be campaigning on green issues. As, as I've said, this is the radical centre ground. Do not allow them to own it, right? And make sure that it is absolutely in the centre of a progressive offer. Because if you don't do that, then you'll have a teals problem. Because the Conservative Environment Network has more parliamentarians in it than the Net Zero, uh, than the Net Zero group. And they are significantly more influential. And Michael Gove is now a backbencher free to roam. And he is the one who introduced the environmental land management payments and uh, was actually comparatively good on clean air and looked at waste management, which now local authorities are going, oh, why can't we have Michael Gove back? Right, that is your threat. 
funny. Uh, Megan, Antinet Zero, anything that picked up in the blue wall or around Steve Baker? Um, to be honest, no. <laughs> um, I think that actually uh, Nigel Farage tried, I think, 18, thank you, 18 months ago to launch a uh, referendum yeah. on net zero campaign that promptly flopped and, and yeah. hasn't gone anywhere, which is incredibly encouraging to see. It's actually something that um, I talk about a lot with uh, colleagues and other um, environmental NGOs, that I think we are actually too wary sometimes of the cultural war issues. Um, and I think that you know getting ratioed on Twitter is one thing, but if it's uh, translating into people understanding and taking your message out um, into the real world, then that's no bad thing. Um, and we can all handle a little bit of heat from GB News sometimes. Um, you know, I think we, we have to be wary of uh, taking the Tory framing and the GB News framing to heart too much and not to prevent us from actually um, speaking about what we believe in. Um, I think that in terms of uh, what Polly's saying about the kind of the individualistic virtue signaling, uh, something that I'm sure is alien to anybody who's spent any time in the, the Labour Party, um, <laughs> is that yes, we absolutely have to move completely away from that. Um, and it's a structural issue, and that is always, at least at Greenpeace, um, has been the line that it is structural. However, there are tricky questions that that brings up where actually, especially like things with energy demand and usage, we do need to rely on people um, to be reducing their, their energy usage. Um, and a, a healthy dose of shame sometimes is no bad thing. Um, so I think that's a, that's a tricky question sometimes where we have to, and again, something that we deal with at Greenpeace where we are absolutely not on the individual level um, and we do not shame people um, and we are very, very cautious about being seen as kind of, you know, middle-class finger-wagging uh, lefty liberals. Um, however, uh, it's undeniable that sometimes um, that is really, really useful when it does come to reducing demand, which is a, a huge thing. Um, and in terms of kind of, again, green activists being seen as, you know, middle class and out of touch um, and being wary of that framing, something that was really heartening to see, um, I mean, not heartening, but was encouraging to see this summer, for example, was um, huge swathes of um, firefighting units, especially um, across the northeast and the Midlands, coming out and saying, These the, this is the worst summer we've ever had in terms of fighting fires. Um, you know, we are exhausted, uh, we are broken, um, and this is directly down to climate change. And I think that <laughs> we need to be, um, as a green movement, as a labor movement, highlighting those voices that are on the front line battling the very real effects of climate change and saying this is how urgent it is. There is always a battle, um, always is and always has been between the Conservatives and the Labour Party about who represents the normal person and actually on this issue Labour and Green Voices represent the normal person and we need to be much stronger in saying that. Um, I, I never want to say anything that encourages complacency but because I work on climate issues in many different countries uh, it's just worth acknowledging that Britain is doing better in building and holding a constituency on climate and a broad um, consensus on climate um, than just about any other Western country. And it actually, it's reflected in the conversation here. There's just a deep pragmatism, which is across the climate movement. I mean, I totally agree with uh, Megan and, and Polly's point that there's breadth, there's different voices, there's different kind of, you know, people have different roles to play. Um, but uh, it's the UK's doing. The UK's a model, actually, for other countries, which might you might also, if you take a glass half full, 
approach, you might think, well, that's pretty depressing where everybody else is. But there's, there would be, this panel conversation would be impossible in the United States. It's mm -hmm. so deeply yeah. polarised and it's so hard to get the climate um, organisations to even half reach out to Republicans, even though the Republican voters are way ahead of where the party is. So just to say, you know, there, a, a lot of progress is being made and it's just so important because we can't, you know, we can't sacrifice climate to the political um, cycle, as, as, as Polly says. Um, I want to make just one, one point, which is a, I completely agree on the point about individual behaviour, but just a reflection on one thing that we did successfully in Australia uh, at a time when we were losing on the broader climate debate 15 years ago. When financial crisis hit, we had a tonne of money to throw into the economy to stimulate, manage to avoid recession. I was um, uh, doing economic policy then. And we had a choice around how we put uh, green funds between um, insulating essentially commercial buildings, which would have been, have produced a better return in terms of reduction carbon emissions than solar for homes, even though the sun shines endlessly in Australia. Um, but we put the priority on the homes and got several million people um, in a population of only 25 million to get solar because we wanted to build a community identity and a kind of consumer mentality around solar citizens, essentially. And, and that really worked. Part of the big shift that happened has happened in Australia is that it became, it went from being this activist thing to just something that was a household budget issue. And everybody was telling their neighbours, I mean, my, my brother's story exactly, so they just generate a ton of energy all the time and they were getting, it was subsidised, feeding it back into the grid. So finding ways that you take it out of being this kind of more abstract issue to being this sort of daily life issue where people love to talk about it and they're getting their readout every day from their solar panels and I just think there's a lot of potential in the behavioural change stuff that is, um, creates a kind of daily virality and you get those, those men who want to tinker in their garages on the weekend, you know, you get them talking about it. Like, you just make it, you broaden the identity around it, and I think there's, a, there's plenty of opportunity. And it's actually, at this stage, where we've still got a long way to go, um, thinking about how you build, like, positive forms of identity and community pride around the, those behavioural shifts, and helping people to see it's possible, these things work, your bath is not going to be, you know, only tepid. You'll still be able to have a hot bath. Seriously, those questions people ask. They say, I love this heat pump thing, but it's, I heard it's only very tepid and I really like a hot bath, so I'm, I'm sticking with my gas boiler, you know. That kind of stuff, and it's just getting, getting, getting it into people's normal lives that they're telling those stories. It makes a difference. We've also found that thing about the hierarchy is that the sensible thing, the sensible practical engineer's answer is you do, you insulate the home first and then you put the, the shiny gubbins and, like, solar panels on top afterwards. But the, the, the important thing for getting people to be involved and excited and do the really difficult bit later is to give them the shiny gubbins first. So you start off with the solar panels and they go, oh my God, this, I'm generating all this stuff, but I'm not getting this much value out of it. Well, maybe I need to insulate my home. Yeah, maybe you should. Um, and, and just working out that sometimes the pathway is not necessarily the rational one mm -hmm. um, is really important because that's where behaviour change actually supports systems change and systems change reinforces the good behaviours. Thank you. Um, so that's, we've got shiny gubbins as point three at the pledge cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, More shiny gubbins, more shiny definitely. Gubbins. Yeah. Right. Everyone wants to buy new trains before they take up money. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, every time. <laughs> Fantastic. Right.
out to the audience. Uh, so we are being recorded, so please tell us who you are and make sure you get a roving mic. Uh, we'll take three because there are plenty of pounds and then we can get short answers from the crowd to get as many in as possible. Uh, yeah, I've got to take you. Um, so we'll just go for the three in the front. Hi, yeah, so my name's Heather. I'm from Cancer Research UK. Um, and so my question is, um, our Chief Medical Officer, Charles Swanton, um, recently, literally a couple of weeks ago, um, published a new report that found sort of the links between cancer and um, sort of air pollution and how that is affecting um, you know, people living with cancer and how you know, climate change as it continues to um, get worse and worse and worse and people will sort of get more types of cancer. And so my question is sort of, um, like, you know, um, Tim and Megan mentioned a couple of issues around like, credibility and so how can your industries and potentially the health sector work together to make sure that actually, you know, these issues that aren't just, it's not just climate, it affects everyone's health and people's ability to live long and healthy lives. And mm -hmm. um, how can these sectors all work together to really send messages to government? Fantastic. And if you want to pass it to you. Hi, um, Alastair, Council of Waltham Forest. So all of Polly's language about the importance of local government being leaders in this space has really resonated with me, as well as some of Tom's comments about the... Uh, practicalities of implementing LTMs um, and how that can have some a bit of heat at times we but you need your to your little Holland is exactly our mini Holland uh, you know we love it and we, we love you guys coming to see it so please do um, two interlinked questions um, one probably a bit more specifically for Polly about in all the work you're doing across the sector are there particular examples of innovation that you see not getting the profile they should um, that we should be looking to replicate and more generally for the rest of the panel I think completely agree the need for us to do more to reassure and give people excitement and confidence that their, their livelihoods will be secure in this new green future. I think hopefully uh, with time the vision here sketched out today will start to build that but quite right we cannot wait. Um, given your understanding of what we do in local government, what messages should we be prioritising right now, what work should we be, be doing to help lead the way on that charge? Thank you. Uh, Adam Waters, Youth Delegate for Birmingham Northfield CLP. Uh, I'm a youth climate striker and a member of the Birmingham Climate Justice Coalition. Um, my question really is about the notion of climate justice, which commonly refers to the idea that for us to make the transition to a decarbonized economy, that's going to require connections with lots of dis different sectors and aspects of people's lives and stuff like that. But I believe that a perennial mistake the left always makes is its inability to communicate what those connections are. And the fact is that the general public just do not see those connections in the same way that people in the climate activist bubble do. So I'm just wondering if anybody on the panel has any thoughts about how the notion of climate justice or the connections between the, tr the green transition and lots of different other aspects of people's lives can be communicated in a way ordinary people can understand. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so we have a question there around health and climate working together, particular innovations for Polly, so maybe I'll start with you Polly. Confidence to people and the tangibility of climate justice. But I feel like you should do very brief and try and do one each, um, and then we'll get to another round. 
Okay, um, good examples of, of good practice at local level. I mean, we've got 100 members, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, oh, I'm never going to let some beat favourites, but I'm going to tell you the really good ones, right? Yeah? <laughs> so um, Nottingham is amazing. One of the reasons why is they started a long time ago. Um, they got on with it early. The, um, their former councillor, who then died, God rest him, when I said to him, how do you manage to get away with having this massive energy gr um, team when the, you know, the <laughs> grim reaper of, of, of local finance came around? He said, because they make us money. And they make the, and the, you know, entrepreneurial municipal, municipalism is really, really important. So Nottingham are really exciting. They also introduced a workplace parking levy years ago, and no one else has done one. Um, other places are now starting, and the, they are needing to learn the lessons of what Nottingham did and understand that, although I always say, no, you're not that special, everywhere is a little bit different, so there are different things uh, to do. Bristol has been really innovative, particularly on finance. It goes to your point about finance. Basically, finance is the next thing. This isn't about technology. It's about money and rules, right? It always is. We're, poli we're political people, right? So get your rules right. And then the money, then the cost less. That's the other thing. Um, but Bristol has done their, their City Leap project, which is producing a big number of projects that they want to be able to get um, invested in and securing a private finance um, uh, partner that's taken a long time but that's uh, very good there is and there are a number of local authorities who are trying to develop different kinds of, fi uh, of finance including local climate bonds they've now got them in West Berkshire they've got them in Leeds and other places Leeds has been transformative they've got a place based they've got a, um, a, a, a commission which is part, partly owned by the uh, university as well as by the local council it gives them independence they give, give advice they've done a mini stern report they've worked out what they need to do they worked out which things are affordable which things aren't which are difficult which can which can and can't be done that model is now being adopted by other local authorities i could go on what i'm what i'm saying is what is really frustrating and you guys need to be able to be berating the front bench because you're more likely to get a meeting with them than i am is why aren't the, the, the front bench learning from the decisions that are being made day by day by Labour administrations across this country that are climate progressive, right? That is the answer. And working out where they could, where they could do much more if the national rules were changed. Reform EPC, change building standards, take VAT off refurbishment, stop the VAT on EV charging on the street. Just like, there's just lots of things that need to be done. Little, little things all over the place. Okay, also reform off gem, which is a bigger thing. But, you know, there's a list, I've got it, I can hand it out, right, and just get it to them because it goes from Bridget and in, indeed Wes, right? This is a responsibility of the NHS because it will reduce pressure on the NHS, right? Why are hospitals one of the biggest drivers of air pollution? Because, we have, because we're frightened of the free car park. Let's be honest. Um, Tim, if you could come in on making the, the tangibility in making this real to people. Yeah. Um, can I just mention one thing on the medical, I think doctors, nurses, those medical Most voices. Trusted. Highly trusted. And in, in countries where, I mean, Polly and I have both done some work on this a few years ago, but Delhi, Poland, countries where it's tougher to get climate messages across, the air pollution message around kids um, is the most effective message. So, so, so super important, should be a part of it. Um, I think on the tangibility, I mean, I, I think the caution, or so the insight that I have from sitting through a lot of focus groups, with particularly with that third of the population who are, you know, low trust, feel disengaged, feel that they don't have voice, is uh, if you're in the world of activism and analysis, you think in abstract terms. A lot of people think in very concrete terms. Mm -hmm. 
So why do they need to have an opinion about climate? They don't. Have, I mean, yeah, their view is like, why well, don't have an opinion about anything? It's an abstract thing. They just they do things in their lives. They do practical things. So I think that's the key is thinking behaviourally. And you know, if you're university educated, you think that you convince someone and then they do something. But what we find, particularly among those groups, but you know, it's true more broadly, actually. The, for a lot of people, you change behaviour and then, you, then they think differently once they start behaving differently. That is, once people had to sort recycling into their various different boxes, because that was what's happening on their street, then they took on an identity as recyclers. So I think just trying to think through that lens, and it just comes, I mean, part of it is being really evidence-based, the way that we do this stuff, how people change, understanding how people change and trying to build strategies that meet people where they're at and and understand those processes of behavioural change rather than assuming that the way, the journey that we we might have gone on is the journey that other people are also going to go on. Yes, I, I'm going to come in on the, uh, the health question. Um, so yes, I think uh, absolutely right that we should be talking about the, the health risks of air pollution and pollution in general. Um, I think that there's been a huge amount of cut through on that issue this summer, in particular uh, in regards to sewage. Had uh, an unreasonably hot summer in the UK, lots of people taking to local water spots um, and lots of people getting sick because of the amount of sewage pumped into the rivers and pumped into the waterways and the beaches. Um, and we've seen real cut through in terms of, of health risks there. Um, but I think air pollution um, in general is a trickier one. I think we are seeing a uh, a slow slide um, from kind of the, the medical establishment, as you mentioned, Heather, about the chief medical officer talking about it in terms of linking the climate emergency to health risks um, much more prominently. The issue is, is that um, people are still uh, essentially quite wary um, of laying claims uh, of health hazards and the cause and harm, so cancers, pulmonary diseases, lung diseases, at the door of big corporates, essentially because of, of lawsuits um, and because these big corporates have deep pockets and uh, if you say actually directly you are causing cancer, they will come after you. And so everything is allegedly and everything is all high levels of pollution that have been linked to, but it's really hard to make that a strong argument. Um, so I think it's brilliant if we can have more, as Tim said, trusted voices from the medical establishment um, making that risk, uh, making that link. Obviously, the, um, the the first person in the UK that was had air pollution um, as a cause on their um, gosh, I've forgotten death what it's called now. Yeah, it was death certificate. Thank you. Um, yeah, was a young girl from Lewisham, um, and she had severe asthma, um, and she was eight years old when she died. Um, but that happened a number of years ago, um, and there's been a law that has been attempted to be passed through Parliament about four times now uh, that is originated in the House of Lords around air pollution, and that still hasn't gone through. And actually, that's incredibly vital, um, and green organisations and, hel and health organisations and the Labour Party could be doing a lot more to have a joint effort to push that through because it's really vital and one last thing that I would say on that is that um, you know I, I agree that when we talk about air pollution and we talk about we say you know there's lots of signs up around local schools being please don't idle here please don't cause pollution where there's kids but which kids are we talking about because Ella was eight years old when she died and in June of this year we released a report at Greenpeace with the Runnymede Trust talking specifically about the environmental emergency and racism um, and about what you call sacrifice zones around things like uh, incinerators uh, around things like uh, waste and recycling centres um, and where normally 
uh, in the UK and also in the US where the research was based, those are situated in places that are low-income communities of colour because those are people deemed to not have political capital, to not have social capital and to not fight back too hard, but they are the people at the sharp end of the environmental crisis and at the sharp end of the health hazards that that causes. Um, and there is a real moral responsibility on everybody involved in this issue to make sure that we are speaking up about that as much as possible. So we are overrunning by three minutes, so if you, you can keep your <laughs> end wrap up for us, that would be fantastic. Uh, I just, I, I mean, I think the panel uh, answered those questions really well. So I think I, I just um, briefly on the, uh, the link between health and, and climate, I think that is an area that's now getting more focused. The Wellcome Trust has set up this kind of joint uh, research round. And I think if you look not just in the UK but around the world, the links between those twin crises are going to be a massive, massive issue in, in the next decades. And for me, the big thing I'd like to see a lot more uh, from all parties here is, is just talk about modal shift. Um, because we're talking a lot about just switching out to electric vehicles. Um, but that's not really the solution. We've designed these kind of cities dominated by the private car. Uh, that's not a kind of healthy way of organising the way a lot of people live. Have buses on your climate pledge card. Just yeah. bring back buses. Can we just have that? Yeah. Um, so I think sort of tackling those systemic drivers of ill health as well as systemic drivers of emissions at the same time can be a really powerful message. And I think some, some of the stuff around air quality as well. And then just briefly on the local government, I think the one area I'd like to see local authorities do more on is on the planning system, which I think that's such a big... Uh, barrier. I've seen a couple of local authorities start to look at the way they're making planning decisions and factoring climate into that in a different way, and I think that could be uh, quite transformative. The levelling up bill, which is basically a planning bill, needs to be aligned with the Climate Change Act, and that should be an ask of the Labour Party. That's assuming we're still going to have a levelling up bill. Well, assuming we're having, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. But it's, well, it'll be a planning bill one way or other, and it'll be a disaster unless it's aligned with the Climate Change Act and net zero, so that's... You know, 101, really. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you all. I'm sorry I couldn't get all to your questions, but we have another 10 minutes in the room. It's still some food, so do grab panellists. Um, all that's left for me to say is to finally to plug that Tom and I have a piece on this very issue coming out tomorrow in The Times, um, so check that out. But thank you very much for coming and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.